So are we excited to finish this encouraging chapter? We're continuing in 2 Peter 2, and now I'm going to read uh, verse 17 to the end. These men are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them, for they mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of sinful human nature, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity, for a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and then again, and then are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them, the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit, and a, a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. So you might have noticed that 2 Peter 2 is one of the more intense chapters in the Bible. And you'd almost have to be a little peculiar to be drawn to a chapter like this, and you'd have to almost be a little bit abnormal to want to preach on it. We don't like to be warned. Uh, we don't like to hear reprimands. But there are times when warnings are needed. Um, I think of how parents have that role with their children, and certainly when their children are younger, but I think that role continues in a different way, but to a certain extent as our children get older. Parents know their children, and even in adulthood, um, I think as Christian parents, if we see our kids, you know, if they're getting off getting off track in their lives spiritually, that the loving thing to do is to have a conversation um, and say, hey, what's going on? You know, how can, um, how, how can we get, you need to get back on track. And, and those aren't pleasant conversations for a parent or a child, but sometimes they need to happen. And my parents have had those with me over the years, um, from time to time. Other people who can serve in that role of giving us warnings because they know us are good Christian friends. Good Christian friends can tactfully serve and should serve in that role. And uh, also the elders of the church have a role to keep watch over their flock too. And, and sometimes that means words of comfort, and sometimes it means loving words of warning. If they see attitudes, lifestyles, habits in us that don't fit for a Christian, and that's why we're in a church like this, where there's accountability, and not just a random person sitting in a chair that no one knows, and why we have 
districts and we want to grow and why we have elders. The Bible also, of course, gives us warnings um, and we have to hear them even if they're tough to take. And, you know, that, that, that is, uh, just as a, a, a little aside, that's one of the great things about expository preaching and doing what we more often do as pastors. We go through books of the Bible. And then when we do that, it forces us as a church and it forces us as pastors to study things and to hear things from God's Word that we may not have chosen on our own. I can't imagine randomly choosing this chapter for us. But by going through books of the Bible, it forces pastors not to just preach on our hobby horse topics, not to just preach on passages that are our favorite ones already, but this helps us get the whole counsel of, of God together. It's the disciple Peter who writes 2 Peter. And Jesus, after his resurrection, commissioned Peter to take care of his sheep going forward. And then Jesus would ascend. He said, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. And, and here we see Peter as the shepherd of the sheep, caring for the flock, uh, but in a different way than we sometimes think of caring. It, uh, it, he's caring for the flock with stern words of warning. We know from the other chapter, chapter one, that he is not far from dying. He says there, I will soon put this body, this tent, aside. And given that his death is near, he's concerned about the flock he's leaving behind. We all saw already he wants them to value their precious faith. He wants them to grow in their faith. And that's all to be grounded in the Bible, which he says is the reliable word of God. But chapter one, that kind of has all that in it, had a very different tone than this one. Chapter one was more like uh, a carrot or a sugar cube. Chapter two, it's like the crack of a whip over our heads. Um, this morning, we talked about uh, one of the main concerns that we hear for the church in the New Testament, and that's division, division in the church. What we have tonight is, is probably right up there with division as far as warnings in the New Testament. False teaching. We read most about warnings about division and warnings against false teaching in the letters of the New Testament. Our elders and pastors, of course, lead the way in discerning between true and false teaching, but we're all called as Christians to grow in our knowledge of God's word enough to be able to be discerning as well. So how do we discern false teaching? Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's a famous preacher, he gives three wrong ways to determine true versus false teaching that I want to, first of all, share with you. First, don't allow how new something is to determine whether it's right or wrong. How did I put it there? We don't determine what's false or right based on how old or new a teaching is. And let me explain that a little bit. These days, you know, in our society, it's all about the latest thing, the 
newest craze, newer the better, uh, cooler it is, newer it is, the cooler it is, whether it's music, clothes styles, we want the latest iPhone, um, we're all about the news of the hour, the minute-to-minute uh, -minute social media trends, and it's all changing all the time. And that makes us have a tendency, all of us, to want what's new in our lives. And I think our spiritual lives aren't exempt from that. So also in our spiritual lives, we can tend to want what's new, what's the latest, what's shiny and new, uh, whether it's new music, new churches, new experiences, new teachings. Pastor Timothy, I think it's in 1 Timothy, is warned about a time coming when people won't endure sound doctrine and will go to teachers who give them what their itching ears want to hear. So just because you hear a new teaching, or we as Christians hear a new intriguing idea, it doesn't mean it's true. Even though we can be drawn to and attracted to what's new. Second, just because something's popular doesn't make it right or true, says Lloyd-Jones. And the false teachers here in verse 2 attract a crowd. Many will follow their shameful ways. Many will follow. And, and you go back to the time of the flood mentioned in verse 5. The whole world was wrong and only eight people were right. Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. That's eight people. And the rest of the world was wrong. In Sodom and Gomorrah, there were less than ten righteous. Is something right and true because everyone says it is? No. That, that's not a way to tell if something is true or right. Um, the Bible, in fact, almost seems to teach that usually, more often than not, the crowd is not going to follow the truth. Just because the majority thinks a certain way is not a good test for you and me to decide if something is right or wrong. There's, there's one more that we have um, thirdly, and this is the trickiest one, and it, it's what makes this passage so serious and why we need to pay attention to it. Just because something is taught in a church doesn't mean it's true. Just because something is taught in the church or by someone in the church is no guarantee it's true. So what does Paul say? There will be false teachers. Where? In the world? In secular Europe? Among our politicians? In the universities of our nation? No. Among you. Among you. And it isn't an unusual or isolated scripture text. Uh, from the Old Testament through the New, we hear of false teachers among the people of God. So just because something is being taught or promoted in the church doesn't even make it true, uh, because false ideas can even creep into the church. In fact, according to the Bible, we're pretty much guaranteed that will happen in history. And as your pastor, one of my primary responsibilities is to make sure that false teaching does not come into this congregation. And it's a primary role of the church leaders in general, to, to be shepherds of the flock, like Peter was, 
to guard against false teaching and to preach and teach the truth. So how do we test true versus false teaching? It's not a huge surprise. It's pretty straightforward. The answer is simply that we go to the Bible. The Bible is sharper than any two-edged sword. The Bible divides true from the false. And like chapter 1 said, it's certain and reliable because it's from God. And that's why we want to have God's word have such a central place in our lives, in our homes, in our church's life. And as pastors, when we teach, we base that, we look to God's word, we look to the history of the interpretation of passages in the Bible, especially how Reformed Christians have read the Bible, and our Reformed confessions guide us as preachers, guide us as leaders, guide the whole church in our approach to God's Word. Okay? So what was this false teaching that Peter was so worked up about? Well, we can't, it's hard to, to figure it out exactly. And, and, and everyone, most folks are like, we're not entirely sure what this false teaching was, but it seems to have been a failure in lifestyle, like loose living, we might say, people living as they pleased. It was a heresy. This was a false teaching, but we could call it a moral heresy, having to do with ethics, right and wrong, with lifestyle. And we read all of these details in chapter 2, which I do not want to rehearse. But sexual immorality seems to have been an issue. We hear depravity and greed is mentioned. And it's probably greed related to seeking pleasure and trying to get it from other people. So this immorality is kind of the major thing, it seems. Um, it also says... Verse 1, they denied that the sovereign Lord bought them. It doesn't seem like they're denying Jesus outright. We don't think they're saying Jesus didn't die on the cross for our sins. But it's more like they were acting like they didn't belong to Jesus. They weren't living like they were bought with a price. They weren't living like they were God's precious children and his precious possession. We have, um, you know, we, you see how seriously uh, Peter takes it. They bring destruction on themselves. Their destruction is not sleeping but awake, which probably means it's awake, this destruction. It's ready to pounce. He compares their punishment to fallen angels who are sent to hell, to the punishments in the time of Noah and Sodom and Gomorrah, which were devastating and complete punishments and judgments, right? They'll be caught and destroyed like brute beasts. They're cursed. Blackest dark is reserved for them. Uh, they're worse off than if they never knew the Lord. Pig in the mud, dog returning to its vomit. We get, we're getting the picture, right? He says the same thing 
in a lot of different ways. Now, what about us? Um, is this a danger for us? And um, in a asking the question, you can guess that I'm saying, well, it could be, yeah. It, because you'd think if things were this bad, as bad as Peter is saying, and, and I'm sure they were because Peter is inspired by the Holy Spirit in writing this letter, you'd think if things were this bad, if people were this bad, it would have been obvious to the church. But somehow it wasn't. They needed this warning from Peter. They weren't figuring it out on their own. And so that tells me that this is something to pay attention to. That something this serious can go on in God's family, but not be addressed. I don't, we don't know if it was noticed or not. Maybe it was noticed and they just weren't doing anything about it as the leaders. But it certainly was going on. It was very serious and it wasn't being addressed. And that's why Peter is doing this. Um, and, and I wonder if part of the reason was because it was in the church, right? And we tend to think of, uh, you know, when we talk about our enemies, our foes, you know, uh, sin inside of us, uh, the world, the devil. But we don't think, you know, we can assume, you know, well, everything, at least in the church, everything is safe. Everything is good for sure because it's in the church. So it's like a mole. Uh, the enemy can be among us, and that's how sneaky the devil is. Um, and that makes this very tricky um, if, if, it's some, if it's happening from within the church. Um, and, you know, in, in a church like ours or many churches, it might be, oh, I've known him or her my whole life. They're basically They're okay. I've known them. He's a good guy. He's a good woman. But the fact is, any of us good people, we have a tendency to get off track. That's our nature. We're prone to wander. Also, what made this tricky, I think, is because they weren't right out saying things that were wrong. They weren't saying, it doesn't seem, that Jesus didn't die for us, but it was more the outward working of salvation and how salvation should look in our lives. And, and, and that can be tricky, right? Um, how should it look? How should our lives look? How do you balance that with, with freedom? You know, the Bible says we've been set free. Um, and, and how do you get not overly legalistic about, about all of that? Those are all, it makes it all tough. But I do wonder if um, what seems like what's happening is, is we get into danger, right, if we're taking a, a human view of freedom rather than the divine view of freedom. God's freedom is being a slave to righteousness. That's what God's word said. That's freedom for the Christian, being a slave to righteousness. Being a servant of God, being a servant of all. So these folks didn't understand, it doesn't seem, 
because of the way they were living, that all people are slaves to something or someone. You can't get around that. It's just a matter of who or what you're a slave to. Only serving God, only with God as our master, is there true freedom. And that makes sense, right? He's our creator. He, he wired us in a certain way to be responsive to him, our maker. Um, and, and we can identify um, false views of freedom uh, just by looking around us in society. People think freedom means uh, we can share or say anything we want in America. And so, so yeah, pornography has to be allowed. We have to have the freedom for that. Or freedom means I can do what I want with my body. And so abortion needs to be permitted. Or people say freedom means I can dress and act like whatever gender I feel I am. That's freedom. But that's all the world's view of freedom. They're all attitudes that people have in the name of freedom. But as Christians, we want to say, hey, wait a minute. Yes, freedom, the Bible talks about that, but it's not freedom to live any way we please. That's not freedom. That's slavery. If we think of freedom that way, we will become slaves to our depravity, which is the phrase that Peter uses here. And we'll become slaves to our own depravity because our depravity, our sin, is so pervasive. God created humankind in his image, and so freedom is defined by him, by his laws, by his ways, by his word. Freedom is in Jesus. Even in as harsh and dark a passage as this, we can find God's grace and we can find uh, the solution to depravity and to false teaching in general. We've got to remember, right, this warning comes out of uh, the care and love of Pastor Peter for the sheep. He wants God's sheep to grow in faith and so even in this rough passage god's grace shines through and there's hope and there's comfort for this the the folks that he wrote to and there's comfort and hope uh, for all of us here there's a couple different things i just want to highlight and then uh, we'll close but verse 9 says, God will rescue godly men from trials. And he's talking about, you know, we have trials, suffering, illness, whatever. Right? But he's talking about the trial of living in a wicked and depraved generation. Like Noah did. And like we do. And we've talked about this. I've, I've heard, you know, in our med, Friday morning men's Bible study, um, someone has shared his heart, and we do that more often, of course, in a men's Bible study, but just, just the pain and the trial of living in this lousy, wicked world. That's a trial for Christians to live 
in the environment that we do. We know something of that today. It tests our faith to live in this culture. It's a trial. But God will rescue us from this, is what Peter says. I also want to focus on Lot, just finally here. Lot's brought up, and he's called a righteous man twice, and he's called a righteous soul. And there's some further explanation of that in the text, which I'm not going to go back to, but we read it, and you can look at it again if you need to. But I don't know about you, but I don't remember Lot being so righteous. We just read about Lot again. We got up to that again in our, in our family devotions just in the last few days. Um, when Uncle Abram gave him the choice of land, you know, because the, the, their sheep, there were just too many, and their servants were fighting, and there wasn't enough grass for everybody. He seems quite selfishly took the most fertile land for himself, which of course would make him richer. So he was thinking very selfishly, took the best land for himself, looked at the path of, of growing in wealth. Um, he eventually didn't live just near wicked Sodom. He moved into the city of Sodom. He had these angelic visitors. He showed them hospitality, which is good. But do you remember that he offered his daughters, threw them out of the door overnight to be abused by the, the men of the city? So how is that guy righteous? How in the world does that work? There's a, I think the key is in a phrase in verse 20. And uh, it, it's, it talks about knowing Jesus. And um, the verse itself is saying, woe to those who know Jesus, but then turn their backs on him. But still, that's the point. He wasn't righteous in himself. It was only by the grace of God. And it was from knowing Jesus. Even that early in biblical history, of course, we know that there was God's promise that an ultimate Savior would come. He didn't know all the details of it, but he knew someone was going to take care of sin and the devil once and for all, because God promised it. And so Lot, despite everything, must have put his faith in that promise. He must have put his faith in the one who would come in the fullness of time uh, to rescue his people from their sin. Despite his own many sins, his faith was in God. And that's what made him righteous. He had that hope. And boy, if a guy like Lot, with all of those poor decisions, can be rescued, you know what? It means I can too. And you can. And all of us can. Through faith in Jesus, through standing on his promises, God continues to save people from our own depravity and from the corruption of the world. That's how we're righteous. That's how we escape the punishment that is coming to all who don't belong to the Lord. And as surely as we hear here, as God is going to judge the wicked, just as surely he shows mercy and grace 
to all who but put their trust in him. He showed that grace to Noah, who reached out to God by faith, to Lot, and to us in Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for your word that um, Peter says is reliable and true. It's from you. It helps us discern what is right and wrong. Thank you, oh God, for every jot and tittle of your word. It's all purposeful. All from you to us. Help us, O oh God, uh, to hear that word in all of its many facets, even while it gives us all one message of God's grace in Jesus and that plan uh, to redeem a people, even a, a people like us, for your very own. Help us, O oh God, day by day, by faith, uh, to hold on and, and, and to, to grab on to your promises and even to Jesus himself. In your name we pray. Amen.